Hey, good evening. Yeah. Okay, so last week, it looked like y'all were angry the whole time. No, seriously, like all of y'all were looking at me like this the whole time. I was like, what is everybody so angry about? But then I realized it was the lights. That like when I'm in just the right place, like literally blinds you. So, hold on, we're figuring the lights out. We're going to get them. We're going to get them. Uh, but it makes me feel better when I found that out, that y'all weren't actually angry with me. Okay. There they go. Now, y'all are all happy. That's wonderful. Okay, let's get started. We're going to be in Ephesians. Like I said last week, we're going to be in Ephesians for the rest of this semester. So if you've got your Bible there, it's on uh, page 976. Go ahead and open up. Like I told you last week, we talked about that idea of saint, that in uh, verse 2, I believe it's in verse 2 of chapter 1, Paul addresses the Ephesian church as saints. We hashed out that idea, and I told you that that idea of identity, that Paul was not referring to the Ephesians as saints because they were really good people. He was referring to them as saints because they've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, received his forgiveness and his mercy, not by their own merit, by their own works. And they were saints because that had happened to them. They had been made clean and whole and perfect in the sight of God because of the work of Jesus, not because of their own works. And therefore, Paul calls the Ephesian church, he calls everyone in the Ephesian church, saints, holy ones. And I told you that that idea is going to be the foundation for the next three chapters of this book. So we're going to be going back to that over and over and over again. And just to let you know, the next, this week, the following week, and the following week is difficult. Chapter, verse 3 all the way to, vo- the, to verse 14 is literally one sentence in the original language. It's one sentence. Like Paul is just like going off, right? And so I've got to break it down into three sermons. So it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to not jump out of the stream of thought and then jump back in. Uh, so the way this works, is I've told you that saint sort of frames the idea of the direction that we're going as we talk about these next three chapters. But I want you to keep in mind that tonight is part one, next week is part two, and the following week is part three of an idea that I've called and we're going to call, you're going to hear this phrase going around a lot, Trinitarian balance. You're going to see that in this explosive sentence that Paul is writing, what he is exploding about in this sentence is specifically this, that every member of the Trinity had a role in making those people in the Ephesian church saints. That it wasn't just the act of Jesus that did that. It was literally every member of the Trinity conspiring together to redeem mankind. And so when he says that word saints, it's almost as if this other thing just just flows out of him and he just sort of before, it's like, he, it's like he, he just says, yeah, I'm writing to, this, to the Ephesian church. And then something just happens, and he just does this long like, exposition of praise to God that really has 
a lot to do with what's going on, but literally like nothing addressing them in the church. Just like him praising God. And, it's li- and he's praising them about the work of the Trinity in saving mankind. That it wasn't the act of Jesus. It wasn't the act of the Father. It wasn't the act of the Holy Spirit. It was these three coming together, and they all had specific roles in that. And so what that does is that sort of shines a light on something for us that we're going to dive into here over the next three weeks. And that is that the Trinity... Whenever you say words like my walk with God or my relationship with God, or I, you know, when we talk like that about our relationship with God and we try to explain that in our, in, our just, in our language, what we're really saying is, and what this text reveals, is that each member of the Trinity has different roles in your life that the other ones do not play. And you've not just been called into a relationship with God God in general, you've been called into a relationship with God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we have been called to interact with Him and engage with Him about different things because they have different roles and they do different things and they make different promises. Even though they are one God. This is the and I'm gonna go too far in this. Okay, like the Trinity is just throws me off. One day we might just have a sermon on the Trinity and how weird and crazy it is. We've done that last semester. We're not doing it again for a while. It's too much. But all I can say now is affirm to you that the Orthodox Church from the beginning of the church has affirmed that the the belief that God is one exists in three. I mean, this is exactly why it says, uh, go into all the world, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three God, different persons, different roles, different functions in the life of a believer. So I'm going to hash out tonight these different roles, different functions of the Father. Tonight we're going to hit the Father. And you're going to see even the way that Paul breaks this passage down is really quite beautiful. He'll have a statement about the Father. It closes with the line, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then he's got the statements about the Son and the Son's work in redemption. It closes to the praise of His glorious grace. So even Paul is helping us see that. And then the statement about the Spirit, verses 13 and 14, closes to the praise of His glorious grace. So he's really just framing this. Here's the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. So that's that's a view to the next three weeks, and this is going to serve as a foundation for tonight. So uh, last week, I just want to bring us back into that discussion for a moment. Uh, Last week we talked about, and and like I told you last week, we're going to always, not always, but it's going to be a lot. We're going to go to Genesis. I'm sorry, it's just the way it works. Uh, that the loss of identity that in, in the garden that these two beings, Adam and Eve, were so wrapped up in the relationship that they had with this Trinitarian being uh, that their identity that was spoken over them of image bearer, children of God, uh, it was so concrete in their life that it actually birthed purpose into their life. And so it, it says in Genesis 1.18, specific word, it, it, that man and woman created Im- in the image of God, um, and it says this image three times are created in his image, and then in that image, being like God in some way, not completely, but in some way bearing his image, it steps right into, in the next verse, their purpose on the earth, which is to carry that image, and not just carrying like, Hey, it's a picture of God and it's my face or something, right? It's not just like carrying like this image of God. It's literally carrying his nature and character, his kingdom and his will for the earth is manifested in the life of humanity so that as God is glorifying himself by creating and he's revealing by creating mountains and stars and trees and 
we'll say the peaches and beautiful, delicious cows that we get to eat. Like as he's revealing all of these things and making all of these things, he is revealing things about himself. I am powerful. I am good. I am creative. I have like incredible creativity that can make this world work together the way that it works. But nothing on the planet displays displays him the way that humans do. Nothing else on the planet has the capacity to display mercy. Nothing else on the planet has the capacity to display patience and kindness that reflects the character of God. So here is the image of God embedded onto humanity to the degree that his will and his kingdom reign on the earth as humans are in relationship to him, bringing the mercy, bringing the patience, bringing the kindness, bringing his rule and his reign to the earth. If humanity is not merciful, the earth will be without mercy. If humanity is not kind, the earth is without kindness. To that degree. It's that drastic. It's that drastic. So, humanity's rebellion, humanity's rebellion, and the loss of that identity didn't forfeit the purpose. We just became really, really bad at fulfilling that purpose. I'm really, really bad at fulfilling that purpose. And so what we see through the course of the Bible is God's work at redeeming mankind so they can fulfill that purpose once again. And so we looked at last time this phrase we need to understand because he's going to use it like nine times over the course of this one sentence and it's that phrase in Christ. We lost the identity and we began to find life and vitality in the creation. And as we found life and vitality in the creation over the Creator, we began to wrap our identity around it. So I told you that story of like, I wasn't really accepted when I was young, and I always felt like I had to find friends and make friends. And so one of the ways that I began to do that and find friends was by being a little crazy, smoking a little weed and getting drunk and being the crazy guy at the parties. And so people began to accept me. So then I began to wrap my identity around that. So it wasn't just that when God... God began to call my name and want to pull me from this lifestyle. It wasn't just that I had to let go of weed. I had to let go of an identity wrapped around me because this was the first time I'd found that sort of real acceptance, right? And so we talked about the way that Christ comes in. Redemption in Christ is found as we have faith in Jesus. And by faith in Jesus, I am so associated with him that my old Life, everything that was terrible before 22 died, and I'm so associated with him in his resurrection that a new man was resurrected. Everything that was true of me put to death. And now what's true of me is that I am in the line of Christ with God as my Father, able to do and be all that God has called me to do and be with nothing that holds me back from my former life unless I let it. That's where we sort of ended last time. So we, I, I want to hash out something in light of that. I, wanna, I, want, I want you to sort of see something else, something a little nuance here, that our identity is not just an identity in a vacuum. So it's not just an identity that's spoken over us. Our identity is what I would call a relational identity. It's an identity that is in relationship to something else. So let me make, let me make this clear. Uh, we can use father-son. That's a great one. Uh, I have been a son since the day that I was born. I have a father, and it makes me a son. He's a spiritual, just like my dad, right? My identity as a son 
is my identity because it's in relationship to the person who conceived me, my father. And so my, my identity there is in relationship. I became a father when I had a son. So you're seeing this relational identity that my identity is somewhat shaped in relationship, in relationship to something else. We see that same thing in the garden, that man and woman are created, uh, but they're not just like, here's your identity. Your identity is shaped and formed by its relationship to this being God. It is shaped and informed and in fact created by is a product of its relationship to God. And so Christ restores what we lost in the garden, restores that relational identity. And so I'm going to be as drastic as to say this. That relational identity, when it was lost in the garden, the relationship itself was lost. It wasn't that we were still God's children, we were just bad kids. No, we were, we were rebels against him, not for him, against all that he wanted to do on the earth, And in our rebellion, he sent his son to make us children once again. You see that? The the relationship was fully lost. It wasn't just sort of like kind of lost. Everything was lost when we rejected God in the garden. And all of the children that came from Adam and Eve were born into that. Not everybody got a choice along the way. We were born from humanity that was separated from God by the time we came along. So I so just want to expand out for a second and then we can drop into this text. I just want to reframe the way we think for a little bit. If, if that is really the case, if that is really the case that my relationship to God is the means by which mercy and love comes to this earth, if it's really by my relationship to God, if that's really the case, and that was lost, and now it's been restored, and it's been restored by the work of Jesus Christ, if that's really the case, and I I honestly say this like as gently as I possibly can, if everything that we will do or be revolves around this relationship with God, I just say super gently, I'm not like trying to make you feel guilty and go read your Bible or something. Like what is the nature of that relationship currently in your life? I would say it's very simple. Is there intimacy between you and God? So if Christianity, like we've said a thousand times, and which sort of lost its meaning now, and maybe that's good because it's such a corny phrase, right? It's not religion, it's about the relationship. It's not religious. It's about the relationship. Right? Okay, yeah, 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 I got you. It's not religious. It's about the relationship. Okay. This isn't the question. Is what, What's the relationship like? Is it good? Does it bring life to you? Is there intimacy there? And so when I say intimacy, you might say, Tara, what do you mean by intimacy? Well, let's just say it this way. I think intimacy has three basic components. There's probably more, but I'm just running with these three because they make sense. Knowledge, interaction, and trust. Think of any other relationship you have with any other person. My wife's a great example. The reason, and, and, and here's, where this, here's how this gets crazy. You think we've just been brought, like Jesus brought us in this static relationship with God. Okay, I'm in relationship with God. Okay, in the same way that I got married four years ago, yeah, I'm, I'm in a marriage, but the intimacy between me and my wife wanes and fluxes by, fluxes? Yeah. It, 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 it goes up and down and it shifts based on these things. 
just because I'm married to my wife doesn't mean that I know the deepest things about her. What, what her greatest fear, her consistent anxieties, her hopes for life, her, her desires for our child. Like these are deep things about this woman that I know, but just knowing them isn't enough. But knowing them is part of it. Like, I could tell you all these things about my wife, but if you never interacted with her and you didn't trust her, then it really wouldn't matter. You would just sort of know her through me. And there's, it's not intimacy, right? It's not intimacy. So part of it is that I know and understand my wife, and I'm taking time to get to know her and understand her more. Okay, it's the same thing about interaction. I, it's not just enough to know. I have to spend time. I have to take time to do it. I have to take time to spend with my wife so I don't go out in the garden and do projects, and I don't go in the house and do projects, and I don't go to work and do all these things. I take carve out time so that I can sit with my wife and have conversations, or we can watch a movie and then have conversations. It's time together. It's part of that, where we grow to learn each other more. But then this other component is trust. One of the biggest, you're going to think I'm crazy, but one of the biggest places that intimacy falls in mine and my wife's relationship is when she comes into the kitchen, I, I like to cook, and I'm a bit of a perfectionist, uh, so it doesn't really go well. And so she's like, I'm going to come and help, right? And, and the first thing, like, she's going to take some butter and put it in the pan and then crank it up on high. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to scald the butter. Turn it, like, on four. Just turn it on four, let it melt slowly, and get on the pan. Like, I'm like, if your butter's getting brown, it's no good. You're like, you've lost all the goodness of the butter, right? And then so then we got to take put onions in there, right? And she's got this crazy way of cutting onions. I'm like, hey, look, 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 look. Let me show you. You can cut an onion like this, like this, like this. You cut like that. And then when you, you can dice it, it's super easy, right? And so every single step that she takes, I come in behind and I'm like, hey, hey, do it this way. Do it this way. Do it this way. Do it this way. And what I'm saying to her the whole time is, I don't trust you to make like queso. <laughs> like I... and, and, and so, yeah, you're like, yeah, I know. It's, it's terrible. I can, it's that bad. But whenever I go in there and she's doing it, like I've told her like 50 times, don't do it that way. And then I come in there and she's doing it the wrong way and she looks at me and I'm like, hey, thanks for helping out. And then, and I'm out, you know, and I just let her go to town, let her do it whatever way she wants. She puts it on the table. Like, this is great. Thank you so much. Right. That's me showing my wife, hey, I trust you. I'm letting the queso be in your, in your hands. <laughs> right. And I'm not going to control this thing. But it does so much because it's an act of me saying, I know you, I know the way you are, I know the way that you like to do things. I want to take time to spend with you, but I also want to take and put trust on you so that you know that you know that I trust you. Intimacy with God is the exact same thing. And, and, and I'm not just saying having a relationship with God is sort of a good thing. I think we framed it from Genesis 1, and I'm going to do this over and over for like, refreshment. I'm going to do this for the next four years. Like, I'm sorry. But we're going to frame over and over and over that your relationship to God and the way that it works and the intimacy that is there is going to be the wellspring from which all of life flows in and out of you. If you were here this morning, exactly what Kyle preached on. I'm the vine. You are the branch. That's, ex- that's exactly what he's saying. You will not bear fruit and you will not have life apart from me. And he's not just saying connected to me. He's saying finding life, abiding in, having intimacy with God the creator is where we find that. 
And literally what he says is where the earth begins to heal. This is why Romans 8 is talking about that the whole creation groans waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because when the sons of God are revealed, humans will stop sucking the life from all of creation that they were supposed to bring life to. That's what it's saying. And all of that is dependent upon a day-to-day interaction with God where I learn and grow in the way that He is. I know of Him. I'm having time with Him to know about Him. And then I'm trusting Him with more and more. And then as I grow in that, I'm able to take that somewhere. If you were in a youth group that really pushed evangelism, I I was. And, And... and they were like, like, it made you feel guilty about not sharing your faith and you had to wear a Christian t-shirt to school, right? And if you didn't have your Bible in your backpack, right, that whole thing. And everybody was like Christian t-shirt day and you felt really nervous because a lot of Christian t-shirts are weird. It wasn't just a Christian. It was like, this is a weird shirt. Right? But so they push this evangelism. They push it, right? And it's like, this evangelism isn't bad. Of course it's good. Like, duh, it's good. Biblically, it's, it's, it's absolutely good. But when evangelism doesn't come from the place where you have life with the Lord and it's bringing so much vitality to you that you can't help but bring that and share that with other people. Your evangelism is always really weak. It's always just like, hey, I sort of heard that Jesus does cool stuff and you go to heaven or something. Right? It's not, look how Jesus is literally changing everything about my life and I want to bring that to you. Do you see what I mean? Even just evangelism, just even talking about Jesus is so much empowered by my life with God and not about apologetics or something. Like, can you prove that the dinosaurs were killed in the flood or something? I don't even know, right? So, when I, I'm just like laying this into you, that your intimacy with God is the fabric that all of life has to be seated on. Or else there will be no life in you and there will be an inability to do all that God has called you to do. And so if that is the case, which it is the case, we're going to spend these next three weeks. I just I did an introduction, then I did a long introduction. That was the long introduction. And, and, and the purpose of this is the relationship with God is, is so vastly important. But if we don't know or understand the way that the Father works, what has He promised to do in history? What has He promised to do in your life? What has the Son done already? And what has He promised to do in history? What has He promised to do in your life? And can I trust Him with my life? And the Spirit, what is the work of the Spirit? What is the Spirit supposed to be doing right now in my life? How do I know, understand, spend time with these beings and then trust them more? Uh, so we're just going to begin to hash this out tonight. Tonight we're looking at the Father. So this is where we are going. Ephesians 1, uh, cha- uh, chapter 1, verse 3. We'll go down to 6. As we're getting into this, I would just, I would just ask that you would be honest about the state of your relationship with the Lord, the state of intimacy with the Lord that you have currently, And if you can, what is it particular to you that gets in the way of that? So my my thrust in all of that was not to say, hey, read the Bible more. And reading the Bible is good. I want you to read the Bible, but it's going to come from the right place, right? And my point in that is not to like push you into some 
weird extra effort. My point in that is to say, what's it like and why is it that way? Simply that. Let's just be honest. What's, what's intimacy with the Lord like? And do you see things that consistently get in the way of it in your life? And then I'm going to hash that out a little more at the end. So let's start reading in, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just uh, before I keep going, I just want to let you know something. You're going to see that word in Christ, like I told you over and over and over again. So even though we're in the section about the Father, this is always going to be about the Father has been doing this and it's been one through Christ. And then when we get to the Christ section, it's going to be Christ and Christ. It's going to be Christ all over the place. And then when you get to the Spirit, it's going to be this is what the Spirit has been doing, but it's done via the Christ at this point in history because it was the Christ who died on the cross. It was the Christ who we've been associated with in life I mean, in death and in life, it was the Christ who d- did all these things. But the other members of the Trinity acted accordingly. And so even though we're talking about the Father, and you see in Christ there, don't let you get confused. It's really about the Father and what, what the Father has sort of done with Christ, and then the Spirit, the same thing. So you'll see how it plays out. Watch. Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. I'm just going to click through uh, four things that I want us to look at verse by verse. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see that? Blessed be the Father. So God is being praised. God the Father is being praised because the Father has blessed us through the work of Jesus. So the Father has blessed us through the work of Jesus. Um, And he's blessed us with specifically the most general phrase I've ever heard in my life. So I say specifically, but it's not really that specific. I, 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 this phrase makes me angry. With every spiritual blessing, what the heck does that even mean? Anyway, we'll get there. But something we need to hash out for a second is, if there's anything in your mind, this is one of the, one of the huge ways that our relationship with God and intimacy with the Father is broken, is because we have wrong beliefs about the Father. So we talk about beliefs and we talk about the role of beliefs in our lives. One of the roles of beliefs in our life, if they are off or incorrect or misplaced, intimacy with the Father and intimacy with the Son and intimacy with the Spirit is going to be broken as well. If I believe the Father is an angry jerk because the Old Testament makes him look like an angry jerk, when I approach him, I approach him as if he's an angry jerk and not a loving Father who wishes to give and to bless and to guide. Does that make sense? So when, uh, when we talk about the role of belief in our life, it's not this big, what do you believe about everything? It's really very specific things. What do you believe God the Father is like? And if you have built in your mind this dichotomy of the Old Testament God is sort of an angry jerk and he, and he kills people for no reason and he floods the earth, right? He did all those things, no doubt. Okay, so we have this picture of the Old Testament God is this kind of guy, but Jesus is a really happy fellow um, with lots of nice things to say to us and not really anything mean to say to us. So we built this dichotomy between the nature of God the Father and the nature of God the Son when Scripture does not build that dichotomy. What you're going to see throughout the course 
course of the Bible is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are moving in the direction of setting everything right on the earth, bringing justice to the earth, setting everything right so that on the final day when Jesus returns again, He will set right all that humanity has done wrong and He will judge everyone. So that is one thing that God the Trinity is moving towards in the course of history is to to reckon to everyone everything that they deserve, but He desires mercy and is willing to give mercy and forgiveness to all who want it, and He will move in that direction. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to see over and over this word hesed, this word, I abound in steadfast love, that God the Father abounds in steadfast love to His creation, and but one thing that He's doing is setting all things right. If He is a good God, He's got to set all things right that are going on on this planet. And He is moving in that direction. But as He sets things right on this planet, humans are caught up in the middle of that and He desires mercy for them and not judgment for them. So you see that in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. That Jesus is moving towards setting all things right, but He desires mercy and He desires forgiveness to all who want it, regardless of their social status, regardless of their uh, financial status, regardless of anything, He desires to give mercy but to those who do not want his mercy, he is moving towards judgment. Right? The first thing that Jesus says, like, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you brood of vipers. Like, the, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and everyone that does not bear fruit is going to be thrown into the fire. It's like, Jesus. So he's a nice guy. Totally. Heals people. Totally. But is he moving towards justice? Yes. But does he want to shed mercy on everyone that wants it? Yes. He showed that by hanging on a cross. So we have to hold these in our mind that God the Father is this way and so is Jesus this way because they're both God. They're both moving in the same direction. So blessed be the God and Father that in Christ they've worked together to grant to us the church, to grant to us who believe, to grant to us who are in Christ, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have died to the old way of life and resurrected to a new life, to these people, He has given every spiritual blessing. Every single thing that you need to do all that God has called you to do for the rest of your life has already been granted to you. You need nothing else. We want tons of physical blessings. And I'm not even saying don't ask for physical blessings. I'm not even say that. You can ask for all the blessings that you want. As long as in the, mood, uh, in the mode of asking for blessings from God, you don't ever forget that everything that you need to walk in godliness and in obedience has already been granted to you and you don't grow angry at God for not giving you the things that you want and you think you need when He's already said you have everything that you need and if you trust, I will walk this thing out where I continue to provide the physical things that you need to make it to do what I've called you to do. But spiritually, everything that you need to do that He has called you to do, He's granted you the ability to do via His Holy Spirit. He's granted to you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, blessed be this Father who because of Christ has granted to us all that we need. Right, okay, let's, let's go down again. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, what else has the Father done? What else has the Father done? Okay, we're gonna, you're going to see that word even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and the next one you're going to see predestined. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm probably not going to let you know you're probably not even going to see or I'm going to tell you my belief on predestination. For some reason in college is when we start talking about this. Like when I got to college, I, I had more arguments with my roommates and just random people in the streets about predestination. Right? They were arguing about one of the most difficult things theologically and philosophically to ever comprehend. How does a sovereign God who has all control grant, how does one does even grant freedom of choice to beings to begin with? And then how does that interplay when he's outside of time and we're inside of time? And we want some really clear cut like, hey, explain to me how that works. Like, no, I have no freaking clue how that works, man. Like, you're crazy. No clue. And I have thoughts on it. I have speculations on it. I can tell you what the Bible affirms on it. But we're not hashing that out tonight because that's literally not the point of this text even though it says it. It is not the point of this text. What's the point of verse 4? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that before the world was founded, before Adam and Eve fell, the Father knew that as soon as He created humans and set things into motion, He knew exactly what would come about as He set them into motion, and that Him and Christ and the Spirit had a little meeting. I don't know how this went, right? If we breathe life into humanity, if we breathe life into humanity, they will rebel and bring death to the earth. What will we do about that? And the Christ says, the Son says, before He actually becomes the Christ and takes on human form is, well, I'll become a human. I'll take on their form. I'll die for everything wrong that they ever did. And we'll grant them life again. So it says, He chose us in Him before the, found, before the foundation of the world, this was set into place and set into motion that the Son would do what the Son did according to the Father's will and that He chose those who would be in Christ. And then what would happen is, this is what would happen. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This is the point. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That everything wrong that we've ever done to ourselves, to the people around us, and to God, His desire, His desire is that that is washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And the Son said before everything was set into motion that we can make them clean again. So do it. Let's move forward with this. Let's create. They can fall. Let's move forward because what we can do is die for them. We can put on their little human suit or whatever and then we can be nailed to a tree and die for them for the purpose of them becoming pure, holy, and blameless as Adam and Eve were before they fell. As humans were before they fell. Able to walk with God in the garden, learning everything that they could, experiencing Him to some amazing degree. And that was lost because we were no longer holy. We were no longer blameless. We were unclean and rebels. And the Son, according to the will of the Father, before time began, says, I want to take them. I want to make them. I want to make them clean. 
I can do that by the blood of the Son. So everything, everything that stands against you, every single thing that you've done wrong, every single thing that you thought wrong, every single thing that you did wrong today or thought wrong today, or the day before, or the day before, does not stand in your account before the God of all creation, before the just judge. This is the way He extends mercy to you. Every Everything is washed clean. Holy and blameless. This is why it says in Hebrews that we approach Him. We approach Him in this way. And one of the huge reasons that intimacy with God is broken among many of us is that we do not approach Him as if we are or as if we are clean, we approach Him as if we are a little unclean and He has begrudgingly let us come in and He's really not happy that we're there and He really doesn't care too much about us and He really doesn't desire to give us life and to give us healing. He really doesn't care too much about that. So we don't approach Him as if He has worked throughout history to make you clean and so I'm clean and so I run to him. Okay, I want you to think. Consider the way that if you you guys are trying to walk with the Lord, consider the feeling that you have after you do something that you've already told the Lord that you're never going to do again. You failed uh, sexually with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you came out of some addiction. uh, You started following the Lord um, and then you, you fell back into that addiction for a minute. What is the feeling like as you go back to approach the Lord? My guess is that you run from him for like three days, feeling a little guilty and feeling like he doesn't want anything to do with you. And then after three or four days, maybe someone from a stage yells at you and tells you it's not true. Or maybe they tell you it is true. I don't know. But the, thing, the fact of the matter is it's not true. Um, and then so we sort of slowly come back to him. We're like slowly, we still cool. Is everything all right? Like, I know you saw that, I didn't really want to, and I, like, I, I feel a little guilty about it, and I, I know, do you want me to feel guilty for a little while? So we entertain, like, should I be feeling, and you like, we don't, know how to, we don't know how to walk through that, we don't know how to deal with that. We just sort of let time play out. What the Father has done in Christ is set forth a plan by which you fall and immediately stand back up and say, Father, I believe the blood of Jesus covers me. I believe I am holy in your sight, blameless in your sight, not because I felt guilty, not because of anything other than the blood of Jesus that cleanses me, and I stand before you clean now. This is what the Father has promised. That's the sort of Father that he is. And he says, yes, okay, I love you. I love you. I love you. Right. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Predestined us for sonship. And the reason uh, the Bible is a little sexist here um, is because the culture is a little sexist here. Uh, This word, if you want to know what this word looks like, Richard Old has it tattooed right right here. It's either right or left. Um, It is... This word that means, one word that means adoption as sons, and the reasons it's adoption as sons is because in the Roman world and in the Jewish world, it was only the sons who could receive inheritance. So the, the word adoption is not just you've been brought into the family, but you've been brought into the family as an inheritor of all that the Father has. That's why it's so specific in that word. It's huiathesios is the word. You'll, you can see it. Richard's really nice. He'll flex for you and everything. But that's what it is. Adoption as sons. 
it says predestined, I guess I'm not going to drop into that. I'm not, set, I'm not following your trap. Okay, I'm not. One thing it does mean is that God has set forth a plan that will not be foiled and that will not be moved and will not be changed. And from the beginning of time, before things were set in motion, he aggressively began to, as soon as the fall happened, to pursue mankind and to bring them back into his family. The reason we are in Christ is not so that we get to go to heaven when we die. That is definitely one little part of it. The reason that Christ died for us, the reason that Christ died for us is to bring us back into the family and the presence of God. To bring us back into relationship with Him. When we die, we're going to go to heaven and we're only going to be there for a short time until Jesus returns and sets everything right on the earth and then we receive our inheritance and reign and rule over the earth like we were supposed to do in the beginning. That's what like Revelation and some of uh, Thessalonians is all about. It's not that we go to heaven and we get to sit on, on clouds and play harps. That's not what happens. We go to heaven until the Lord returns and we return to this earth. In the end, Revelation 21, is that, is that heaven, com- um, heaven comes down from earth. The new Jerusalem comes down from the heavens and is on the earth. And God says, I dwell with my people once again. I dwell with them face to face. This is what he's saying. I brought you into my family and I've chosen to do that. It wasn't because you ran up and knocked on the door. It's because you couldn't knock on the door and I rescued you and redeemed you. I did all the work and I love you. Like I care so much about you and I want you in this. And I know you're going to fail. Like duh, you're going to fail. That's why I sent Jesus, of course. So come to me. Like come to me. I love you. Right? This, is the, this is the heart of the Father, right? And this is exactly what Paul is, is, is like exploding about in these passages. Uh, he's relentlessly moving in this direction. It's not a new plan that sort of came up. It's always been in place. And at the heart of the work of Christ is to restore this relationship. So the Father has a will for you. And yeah, it involves a little bit of where you go to school and who you marry and yeah, all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got these will. He's got a will to make you holy and blameless to conform you to the image of His Son, which He will do. And he has a will to adopt you into his family and to never let you go. Ever. No matter what. And then we see that last phrase. He did that to the praise of his glorious grace. That God is so concerned about himself being glorified that God will work to glorify Himself in all that He does, the way that He has chosen to glorify Himself in this era of history is to redeem mankind and be good to them. And that is beautiful that those are not opposed. It is beautiful that those are not opposed to the praise of His glorious grace that all that is left for those who have trusted in Christ who have died with Christ, been raised with Christ, all that is left is grace, grace, grace. And that's the fabric on which we approach the Father. So, just in, in, in culmination to that, these words, th- uh, verses 3 to 6, have got to come up against, they have to come up against what you think about God, how you feel about the Father. 
they have to come up against these vague notions that God is aloof and remote and doesn't care about your tests and doesn't care about you uh, in college and doesn't care about the little things you have going on. He's a father who is good. He's a father who is good. And everything that he does is good. So we have to deal with these notions that he just sort of is, ah, so he like created everything and stepped away. Or he's some old angry man. And these notions come to us from so many places, but one of the places that this has got to come up against is the places of hurt and confusion in your life when something happened and it seemed so clear that this is so bad that God cannot be good. If God has a will and He is sovereign and this thing happened to me or is still happening to me, there is no way He is good. You feel what I'm saying? There are things that have happened in our lives that it's not just like we heard on TV that God was a little angry. No, like we've lost people that were close to us. We've been hurt by the church. We've been hurt by by people that were like, there there are things that have happened that should have not happened. And our only way of of coping and understanding this is either God is not there or he's not sovereign or or he's not good. But there's no way he could be there and good. Or, not just experiences, the only way we have to associate how God the Father is is through our earthly father. And I, I know just in a room this size, some of you have bad fathers. Some of you had fathers that did not do what the Lord called a father to do. And so you have a bad example. And so when I say, hey, you need to, you need to know about the father. You need to trust the father. And you're like, if you knew my father... I have no way of comprehending how God the Father... I, I would never trust my earthly father. How could I trust this guy who I can't even see? So I have no doubt that there are things in your life that make this difficult. That if intimacy with God is like an easy thing where you heard a sermon and then everything's great, like we wouldn't be in this place because you've probably heard like 50 sermons or more. But this is where we begin to walk with our Father. This is how we begin to walk with Him is we allow what this book says come up against experience, come up against notions, come up against fears, come up against that. And we very soberly look at this and say, God, this looks like you weren't good here. But I believe this book says that you are and that you're a father who loves me. So I reject what that says to me and I trust you. You see how that is? And it's not that easy. And it's not that simple. But it's possible. And there is life to be found as we begin to walk in that. As we consistently comb through the notions and the fears and the thoughts that we have about our Father. And we bring them up against this. And he says, everything that I've ever done has been for your good because I'm faithful to you. I'm faithful to you. Everything has been to glorify me and for your goodness. I've never done anything that was not good for you. That's hard to say. And so what I'm saying tonight is what we have to do as we begin to interact with 
If everything in life is dependent on how I abide in the vine, my relationship with God, the Trinity, the first thing I need to deal with is what are my notions about the Father and are they wrong? Are they inconsistent with Scripture and the way that God has revealed Himself to be? So uh, I just want to say very uh, candidly, very, very quickly, this doesn't just go away. Notions don't just go away. So is it, you, you've, had, you've had this before. Where you get into a conflict or a fight with somebody. So me and Josh Taylor, the beard, we get in fights over email occasionally. Um, and they start off as a joke and then they sort of stream on, you know. And I'm like, I don't know when this turns serious, but it's super serious right now. <laughs> and so we had some posted on the wall of our office for a while. Uh, because I was trying to convince the office that I was in the right, and he was trying to convince the office that he was in the right. Uh, But there's this time where me and him had this conflict, and we never really talked about it. We just sort of let time go by. And so the air was never clear. I didn't really know how to, like, like talk to him. I couldn't know if I could be myself around him anymore. I didn't know if I could joke him and make fun of him anymore. You know what I mean? Like we're just in this weird conflict place. And so I know there have been conflicts in your life. There have been places in your life where you get into a conflict, you get into an argument, and it just sort of like you're not mad about what you were mad about originally. You're not upset about what happened originally. But there was never like resolution. And so you get around the person and you're just like, what? Are, are we normal? Like we we talk or I don't even know how to interact with you right now and so this is happening on a daily basis between us and God that there are things we don't really fully we haven't really clarified with him we haven't really brought to the table and said this happened and I was angry about it and it doesn't look like you were good here but right now I'm just going to cling to the word because that's all I've got and I'm just going to say that you're good even though everything in me feels like this was really crappy and I don't really get how you are right now But see, we approach him and we clear the air and we lay it on the table and say, this felt this way, but I trust you. I have nothing else to go on but this word. I have nothing else. Because experience is just right now showing me that everything is crazy. But I trust you're going to be faithful. I trust you can leave me out of this, right? Uh, So I would say, uh, last last thing I would say, very candidly, like I said, I would just plead with you um, that you would take time You would take time as we worship tonight, as you go home tonight, you wake up in the morning soon, that you would take these notions or these frustrations and you would lay them on the table and be so honest about what they say and how they make you feel. And then you would turn and say, Father, I trust you. That you come to Him, you repent, you confess, Father, I believe that you are angry and that you don't love me. I believe that you're not going to take care of this. I believe you're not going to lead and you're not going to guide. I have believed these things and acted according to this way. I know that's wrong. I believe now and just put my trust in this, that you are good, that you will guide, just whatever pertains to exactly what those notions are. And you would take time to clear the air between you and your father because I think a big thing that gets in the way of intimacy a lot of times is not something specific. It's just these vague notions that we've carried around from the experiences of our past and the hurts and the confusions. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal.
So just plead with you that as we worship tonight, you would do that. Tonight as you go home, just make some time for it. Make some time for it.